Welcome to the Schwartz on Sports Podcast, hosted by Noah Schwartz. Hi everyone, welcome back to Schwartz on Sports, episode number 19 here on the Belly Up Podcast Network. Uh, we have another guest today, so alongside me is my uh, assistant on the show, Owen Tambor, and then alongside him is Dr. Charles Steinberg. I'd like to welcome him to the show. He's currently Thank the you. director of sports communication and a professor at Emerson College. Right. In addition to that, he's the president of the Worcester Red Sox, the Red Sox AAA affiliate, and he's also spent time working in the big leagues as an executive vice president with the Red Sox and then also with the Orioles, the Padres, and the LA Dodgers. So, Charles, how are you? And welcome uh, to the show. Well, I'm doing fine, and uh, thanks for having me. I'm on a construction site for Polar Park, the future home of your of your Worcester Red Sox. And um, if you want to see what it looks like, well, that's what a construction site looks like. But we are uh, seated in the car, but right atop a 22-foot-high Worcester wall. It's a mini monster. It's like the green monster at Fenway, only it's blue. And it's 22 feet instead of 37 feet. And it's in right field instead of left field. But other than that, it's pretty similar. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the it's the blue monster, so to say. The blue monster, and uh, um, unlike um, the green monster, this one's at street level. So the street is higher than the seats because the street in right field is thirty feet higher than the field. So the wall is built into a thirty foot high um, uh, cliff. And that allowed us to put the seats on top of the monster, but at street level. Okay, that's cool. I interesting, that. interesting. And, and you said you're about seven to eight weeks away, right, from playing the first game at the new ballpark? We hope to take delivery of the ballpark April 1st. And um, we haven't gotten the schedule yet from baseball. Uh, that's been delayed by COVID and related factors. Uh, but um, we would imagine it's sometime in those first two weeks of April. So that's really where I wanted to start today, uh, that plan. What exactly is the plan uh, for your team and the league um, and what's going on with minor league baseball? How far along are you guys in determining what's going to happen for 2021? When you don't know the schedule, it is challenging to turn pencil into pen. Um, But um, uh, we have asked if we could start on the road. And if you imagine that opening day would be on Tuesday, April 6th, and you start on the road, then maybe we would be home the following week. But you don't know it for sure yet, but that doesn't stop us from uh, designing plans. And what you want to do is have an opening week. Opening day itself, way more people are going to want to partake of opening day than you can accommodate, even in a non-COVID situation. The ballpark will hold just under 10,000 people to be uh, cute and somewhat clever. Our capacity honors the area code of Central Mass, so it'll be 9508. But you may not be able to have 9508 on opening day uh, in a COVID atmosphere. It may be a reduced capacity. But any way you look at it, there's going to be more attention and more people who want to come to opening day than you can accommodate. So what we learned long ago when we opened Camden Yards in Baltimore was make it an opening week so that everybody can enjoy the celebration somehow, some way. 
So you can actually start your celebration before opening day, maybe around town. Worcester has some gorgeous venues. Mechanics Hall is a marvel. The Hanover Theater is beautiful. Maybe you could have a Red Sox rally at Mechanics Hall. Maybe you could have a, a baseball musical review at the Hanover Theater. Uh, so you can let people start to enjoy the festive atmosphere, the celebration, the great victory for Worcester to have the AAA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox. Uh, and then it goes into the actual baseball. Uh, and uh, every day in opening week, you would imagine putting the spotlight on a group of people who deserve the spotlight. Um, what are you doing for your frontline heroes? What are you doing for your police and firefighters? What are you doing uh, for your social justice heroes? What are yeah. you doing for kids? Um, and so you go right on through and you, um, you may have a lot of opening days. There may be opening day, there may be kids opening day, teachers opening day, frontline heroes opening day. And um, suddenly you realize your homestand is full and you're going to continue with the next homestand. So it may be more like an opening month and it may turn out to be a whole opening season. Yeah. So what I'm gathering here is you do you anticipate fans around? Yes, absolutely. Good. We're planning for fans in the ballpark. It's just a question of how many how you many? can accommodate safely. What are the health and safety protocols going to be for the players and those working with the team? Are they going to get tested every day? And how confident are you that uh, you, you guys can all stay safe through this tough season? It's a very good question, a timely question. Major League Baseball uh, is overseeing all of minor league baseball now. So you not only have the 30 major league clubs, but, a one, but 120 affiliated minor league clubs. So look at it as a 150 club unified uh, organization that is one baseball and major league baseball therefore is uh, developing the protocols has done so has talked to the players association has reached agreement and they will orchestrate and direct those protocols so i'm not going to tell you yet that i know exactly what we'll do uh, our ball club includes the Woosox front office, but all uniform personnel are employees of the Boston Red Sox. All the players play for the Boston Red Sox and are paid by the Boston Red Sox. The trainers uh, are as well, uh, your coaches, your manager. So they will implement the, uh, the protocols for the players. We will for the front office and for the fans. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Gotcha. Uh, so do you think that this is a season um, si similar to what, you know, there was no minor league baseball last year, but do you think this season is one that you guys might be able to get through, you know, relatively unscathed or based on what we saw in the major leagues last year? I mean, it could be very tough to get through a season without any major issues. I think the ones who think they know get disappointed. I think that humility declares who knows? We're planning. We're hoping for the best. We're ready to open with full crowds. If everybody's vaccinated or everybody has the antibodies, whatever, whatever the, the science uh, dictates, we're ready uh, and developing readiness for partial attendance. But um, in early February, you only know what we know in early February. 
And while opening, uh, the opening of the ballpark might be seven weeks away, we're, we're reading a changing world dynamic every day. Uh, we're doing this podcast on February 11th. And in today's New York Times, it's the most encouraging article I've seen in weeks, in months uh, about COVID. But you don't know. Uh, will there be a super spreader effect from the Super Bowl? We just don't know. Will the vaccination process accelerate and make it easier to accommodate more than a couple thousand fans? Love that. Just don't know. We know no more than anyone else. And I think that that humility has been a lesson of COVID uh, to recognize that um, uh, anyone who thinks they know more than anyone else, well, they may be a scientific expert, but no one else. Gotcha. I want to switch gears for a second. Your organization was in the news last night. They made a pretty significant trade with Andrew Benintendi. I know he wasn't in AAA. He came straight to the big leagues from AA. That's Is there right. anything that you maybe know about him or uh, have you been around him at all and, and sort of gotten a good look at his game? Do you know much? Well, I, I know him as a fan knows him. I mean, I've said hi and smiled and we were in the 2018 World Series together. Uh, I know him to be a great guy, a nice guy. Uh, that outfield um, of Benintendi, Bradley and Betts is one of my favorites. My, probably my favorite Red Sox outfield uh, since growing up in Baltimore and admiring uh, Rice, Lynn, and Evans. Um, and uh, the the two catches that come to mind, that ballet catch at Fenway Park that was the photo of the year, uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the season-saving, postseason-saving catch right, right. in Houston. But a lot of what I've learned that goes on on the field um, doesn't qualify me to be a professional evaluator. That's not what I am. I'm, I'm a professional fan and I, I, I major in the fan experience, but growing up uh, from the age of 17, working for the Baltimore Orioles, the, the elements that you pick up from people who become your friends lead me to give you this example. And it's one uh, I shared with uh, Owen in, um, in class um, uh, last night. What Ben Attendee did as a first round pick and as a uh, early star um, could concern some evaluators because 2019 wasn't as good and 2020 wasn't good at all. Now you can write off 2020, but that's uh, an academics work. What the only people who really know the game are the scouts. Right. They're the only ones who actually understand. Everyone else bases future predictions on the past. Only the scouts base future predictions on change, on mutability. And uh, the Hall of Fame first baseman, Eddie Murray, one of the greatest players in the history of the game, who became only the third person ever with 500 homers and 3,000 hits, uh, became a dear friend of mine. We grew up together at the Orioles. And he said, if I were going to change the name of the game from baseball, I would change it to adjustments. And the key to a flourishing major league career is your ability to recognize the adjustments that have been made to you 
and that you therefore need to make and the physical ability and agility to then execute those adjustments. So a scout doesn't say, oh, his numbers are declining. They therefore will decline. A scout would say, ah, here's the reason yes. that the numbers uh, 19 and 20 weren't as good. And if he makes this adjustment and if he realizes it and can execute it, then those numbers may turn around. The Baltimore Orioles of my youth were famous for taking players whose numbers were in decline that others gave up on because they thought the numbers dictate the story. They never do. They explain history. That's all. When a Pobson wins 14 and loses 15 for the San Diego Padres, why are you making a big deal about acquiring it? Because if he does this and this and this, and he did, he becomes a 20-game winner. Right. Became a 20-game winner in 1971, a 20-game winner in 1972. So the game is a game of adjustments. I don't know if that applies to Ben and I'm not that kind of baseball expert. I'm an expert on hot dogs and nachos. But <laughs> if those adjustments are what need to be done, then Ben Attendee's career, uh, provided he stays healthy, may be dependent on the recognition and the ability to make those adjustments. Do you think that um, that your organization at the AAA level, how much power do they have in determining the return on a trade like that? Because I understand they're getting one minor league minor leaguer back, a major leaguer, Cordero, and then a couple of player uh, players to be named. How much power does does your organization with the baseball people? How much power do they have in saying that we want this guy or that guy from another organization? Or is that people at the major league level who are deciding who comes in as a organizational depth? Power? How yeah. about zero? You have How no determination zero. in that. Okay. We have no determination, no opinion, no say, and that is the way we love it. We are here to develop the players who the Boston Red Sox are bringing along in their farm system and it is entirely correct and right that Chaim Bloom be the evaluator and the ultimate judge. It would be foolish, devastating, and destructive if people who were not baseball evaluators suddenly believed that because they love the game, they have an influential say. You're going to go downhill really fast. Okay. The acumen that your heads of baseball operations have, general managers, sometimes they're called presidents of baseball operations, sometimes now they're called chief baseball operators, uh, uh, chief uh, baseball officers, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they call you. It's who has the experience, the wisdom, the skill set, the people skills, to evaluate the evaluators and know how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. It is the role of the Woo Sox to welcome every player who comes up from Portland and to give them an environment in which they can flourish and in which case they can hear the first uh, deep 
E strings of a cello and a guitar that Harold, I'm shipping up to Boston. Gotcha. Okay. Go ahead, Owen. I know you got something to ask. Yeah. So kind of a little bit off topic here, but you know, in class you tell us so many stories. So if you were like, you know, a lot lot of stories. So if you were like tied down to a chair and they were told you could only tell one story, what would it be? If you had to tell one story, like one, the story that really comes to mind that you want to share to the world that you had, they one story you could tell. Let me ask you to choose one of two categories. Perfect. Would you like the real nitty gritty of inside how you play baseball? Or would you like the impact of a ball club on families and community? I think, I think I'd like to hear the impact that uh, ball clubs have on the community. You know, some of the things we don't always hear about. Then here is one trilogy, one three-part story that has taught me everything I need to know about the business of baseball. Okay, here we go. We joined the Boston Red Sox in 2002, having come from San Diego, living in La Jolla. The Pacific Ocean was our front yard. The weather was balmy all the time. And we came to Boston, a contrast to be sure, where it was either 25 degrees or 95 degrees, where the roads were narrow and old, not those California freeways, and where the people loved you or hated you. And when you haven't won a World Series since 1918, that, that, that pendulum was swinging one particular way. Plus, here we were outsiders. We didn't grow up in New England. And how can we take over your beloved Boston Red Sox? So we had some hills to climb. In 2003, we all remember, even the youngers, how Aaron Boone punctured the night with his parabolic home run that gave the Yankees the pennant and robbed us of what we thought would be a trip to the World Series, and an opportunity to win for the first time since 1918. And it was deafening, the silence. So November is there for a month of mourning. And in Boston, November is cold and gray, and the clouds are thick, and the air is raw. Not a particularly happy time. And after all, November is the furthest month away from the baseball season. The only thing that makes it worse is when you are in a subterranean conference room at Fenway Park in, dare I say it, a budget meeting. In a budget (laughs) meeting, three people from accounting are sitting across the table for you with verbal guns ready to shoot down your proposal of the monies you want to spend next year. While the president of the club, Larry Lucchino, sits at the head of the table like a judge, a magistrate who will rule between the two sides. And although we get along fine with the accounting folks, they're doing their job of trying to minimize spending. Charles, do you really 
need $20,000 in the budget to have our annual caravans in the winter to each state in New England. After all, we've sold out every game since May 15th of this year, 2003, and we're likely to sell out every game next year. Do we really need to fly in players and have them go around in January to each of the New England states to meet fans? And I said, no. You don't need to. You can check it off. You can pat yourself on the back. You can go home and have dinner and say, I saved the club $20,000 today. Knock yourself out. But don't think the fans won't notice. Don't think that they won't realize that you're pulling back on the goodwill tours that have characterized each winter. Don't think that they won't sense the first seeds of arrogance. And arrogance kills every empire. So go ahead. Knock yourself out. But you are beginning to take the club down a road from which you may not recover. And then I got a little more animated. And Larry Lucchino said, okay, okay, okay. You made your point. We'll still do the caravan. So two months later, on a day like today, a, uh, a wintry day, it was, oh, around the third week of January, 2004, with snow on the ground, kind of the slushy, frozen, leftover snow. We board a bus at Fenway Park, and we head down for a caravan doubleheader. We're going to go uh, to the Warwick Mall in Warwick, Rhode Island at uh, 1230 and meet fans, sign autographs and then head down to Connecticut for a reception at nightfall. We have three good ball players that we brought into town, Jason Veritek, Bill Miller, and Kevin Millar. Mm -hmm. And we get on the bus okay. along with our ambassadors and our security people and our community relations people. And off we go down to Warwick, Rhode Island. We get out, we get up, uh, we set up the table and the chairs and the pipe and the draping and the ball players sit side by side by side, and there is a line snaking through the Warwick Mall that you wouldn't believe. Now, this is a Wednesday in the middle of the day of January, and I'm thinking to myself, gosh, how are we going to get through all of these people before we have to leave for Connecticut? Well, the line is long. Look, the only thing worse than not doing a caravan is doing a caravan and then say, ah, oh, sorry, we got to go. Yeah. So we yeah. had to improvise. I said, all right, let's take the kids out of the line, form their own line. Let's at least make sure the children have met the ball players. I can deal with a, an angry adult better than I can deal with a crying child. <laughs> Even the line of kids was long. I mean, it's a Wednesday at 1230. Why aren't these kids in school? That's how popular, how obsessed people were at that time with the Red Sox. I don't think we're going to make it out of here in time to take care of all the kids. That's not okay. Let's improvise again. All right, let's take Bill Miller, put him at the end of the line, mark the end of the line, and have him start signing autographs going forward while the other kids in the front of the line are getting the autographs from uh, Veritech and Millar, 
And that way we'll reach an intersection where everybody met somebody. And right. that's what we did. We got it done. Every child met one or two ball players. We pick up the, the uh, pipe and the draping and the table and the chairs and security whisks the players off to the bus. You've done your good deed. Why is that kid crying? Over there, there's this 11-year-old with pudgy cheeks and a Norman Rockwell face and tears coming down, wearing a Veritech jersey. And I go over to him. I said, what's wrong? He said, I got out of school today to meet Jason Veritech. I said, and you only met Bill Miller. He goes, mm -hmm. <laughs> He said, uh, I'm a catcher like he is. And I thought to myself, I knew that same body type they always made us the catchers right i was same thing i was always a catcher i said look i said to myself baseball is designed to teach you the lessons of life and in boston the lessons of life are they're gonna break your heart kid you better learn it now it is one tough place it's rough it's raw it's passion uncovered but i'm not from boston i'm from baltimore the orioles were a very pleasant organization so i put my arm around the boy and i said look that bus isn't leaving without me you just take a walk with me and let's see what we can do and nonchalantly unnoticed we walk out of the mall his mother's chasing us what are you doing with my kid and we <laughs> go out into the parking lot and we climb on the bus and there's Jason Veritek, who graciously signs the jersey. Mom is taking pictures. He meets Kevin Millar, reacquaints himself with Bill Miller. Off the bus they go. Off to Connecticut we go. And you've done now the real good deed. Later that summer, 2004, I did one of my favorite things, which was when the Red Sox were on the road, in New York for a weekend, I would hop on the Acela train and go down to uh, to watch the Red Sox at Yankee Stadium. I had no, no responsibilities. I was just a fan right. getting to watch Red Sox Yankees in New York. So on this Friday afternoon, I'm on the Acela and um, I, I pull down the tray of the, the seat in front of me and I take out my work, take out my Red Sox media guide. And along comes the conductor, a surly older guy, tickets, tickets. And he looks at me and looks at my tray and looks at my books and says, what's that? I said, oh, that's my work. Said, what do you mean that's your work? And I explained, I work for the Boston Red Sox. Now, this could go two ways. It's a train going from Boston to New York. <laughs> he could be a Red Sox fan or he could be a New York fan. And he looks at me and says... I've been waiting all my life for them to win. I won't live to see the day. And with that, he walks off. And you realize that actually went well. That meant he was a Red Sox fan. Not a happy Red Sox fan, but at least he was a Red Sox fan. So we go to New York and we meet Red Sox fans who live in New York. That's a courageous bunch. We promised them that if we win the World Series, we'll bring the trophy down to New York and meet at one of the popular spots to get together. Well, everybody knows the story. Lo and behold, miracle of miracles, 
we win the World Series. And so I think it was around November 12th of 2004, if that was uh, a Friday. And uh, again, dark and cold and, oh, you know, we're not in San Diego anymore. And we take the trophy and it is encased in a big black and anvil, silver anvil footlocker. Like you'd never know that there was, you know, no, no sign of it being in there. And again, we've got the ambassadors, we've got the community people, we've got the photographers, the videographers, and we get onto a train to take the trophy down to New York. And the last seat in the car is followed by ample space for people with extra luggage. Well, it was just the right amount of space for this big footlocker to take its little parking place or big parking place. We used up all the space. Down the aisle comes the conductor, the same conductor. That's oh my awesome. God. And he says, That's and awesome. he says you, you can't put that there because <laughs> we used up all the space. But then he does a double take and looks at me and then looks back at the case and looks at me. And then his face melts and he says, is that what I think it is? I said, it is. He said, can I see it? I said, you can. And we opened up the case. We took out the World Series trophy, won just, what, two weeks before. He held it like a baby in his arms. We took pictures. We then took pictures with everybody else on the train who wanted to hold the World Series trophy. And I said, "Um, would you like to come to opening day when we present our players with rings? And he said, can I bring my son? I said, you can. He said, I'd like that. Well, opening day 2005 was the first edition of Red Sox magazine. And the cover that I wanted was one of a mosaic of all of these people who over the winter had held the trophy, had touched the trophy, had uh, had the, the, the tactile sensation of touching the world championship. And somewhere in my mind, I made sure that I put that picture of my little conductor in, in that photo essay, just a little, I don't know, nobody would know except me, but it was just one of those little artistic things that you do. That's a good, that's a really good story. Now, really good. 2000, uh, we get to, um, now our story jumps ahead to January of 2006. And it's time for the Red Sox to put single game tickets on sale. So, I want a billboard to declare that that single game tickets are on sale January 28th. And I need a billboard because Fenway Park, particularly at that time, didn't have much in the way of street facing signage. And yet people would drive around Boston and drive around Fenway. I wanted them, you know, they're thinking about the Red Sox. Oh, there's Fenway Park. Oh, single game tickets go on sale January 28th. So I wanted a billboard. But for the billboard, I wanted a photo of player-fan interaction, not just players celebrating, not just fans being happy. I wanted to show the interaction. And my desk on a cold January night at Fenway Park is covered with slides. And I'm looking one at a time, slide after slide after slide after slide. No, no, no. That's it. Got one. It's the right shot. 
It's three guys, oh, in their, you know, say 20 years old. And the one in the middle is shaking hands with Trot Nixon, great Red Sox right fielder. Yep. And even though it's four profiles, three guys on one side and Trot on the other, you can see enough of the four faces to see the joy and the glee. Actually, on all four faces, it is player-fan interaction. And I put that billboard up. A few days later, I get a call from uh, one of the great um, sports reporters in Boston, Butch Stearns at uh, Fox 25. He says, Dr. Charles, can I come and do a story with you today about that article in the Boston Herald? I said, oops, you're ahead of me. I didn't see that article. I said, oh, you got to read it. He said, um, there's an, a husband and wife, an older couple, uh, very religious. Um, father was in the military. And um, they sadly lost their son uh, while he was in military service, not to combat, but while serving, he was killed by a drunk driver. And um, they've always wanted to believe that their son is in a better place. And they've been looking for a message. And someone told them that there's a billboard across from Fenway Park oh my goodness. with their son's picture. On it. Like, wow. Oh, my, oh God. my God. I said, I said, what have I done? They said, no, no, he's there. They take comfort in it. So Butch comes over. We do the story. I explain that obviously I was just a messenger and, uh, you know, there was divine intervention in selecting that one picture. Well, ESPN sees the story, wants to go a little bit bigger. By now we're at spring training and they interview me and they interview Trot Nixon separately. Now, now. Trot Nixon is a born-again Christian. I'm a born-the-first-time Jew. And they do the interviews separately, and we gave practically the same interview. How we were messengers, how this was um, divine orchestration. Now, at that point, it was time for the billboard to come down. I guess I was still at spring training, so I wasn't there for this. We offered the billboard to the family, and they said, thank you, but, you know, it's too big. We would need a truck so, okay well then they called back friends of ours have a truck so there was a poignant private little ceremony i wasn't part of it when the billboard was given to the family with their friends who had the truck so now it's 2006 and i won't tell you that i've ever really adjusted to boston having lived on the ocean in san diego but I now am buying a home on the South shore at the ocean in the town of Hull. And I close on the purchase of the house, June 30th, 2006. My birthday. And uh, there you go. How about that? More divine intervention. <laughs> and uh, my friend from college, who's um, an astronomer uh, and his wife, who's also an astronomer are staying with me. And we we stay at the house for the first time and the next day on july 1st we're sitting outside looking at the ocean and these two ladies come out of the water oh they're you know older ladies and uh jolly ladies and they come over oh are you our new neighbors i said yeah i'm charles and um, these are my friends uh peter and ariel oh well i'm uh sue and i'm julie we're our family are the Clancy's from Quincy. 
Um, our mother's the matriarch of, I think, maybe 10, 12 kids. And we live next door and we all just use the beach house from time to time uh, throughout the summer. It's very nice to meet you. So off they go. The next day is July 2nd and we're sitting outside watching the ocean. And a fellow comes out of the water in his early 20s and he comes over and says, uh, um, oh, I heard you met my mother and my aunt yesterday. Uh, I said, okay, yeah. I said, are you another Clancy from Quincy? Uh, he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm Robbie. Um, I said, I'm Charles Steinberg. Now, I hadn't said Steinberg the day before. I had only said Charles. He goes, it is you. It is you. Dr. Charles from the Red Sox? I said, yes, that, that's right. Oh, my God, that's amazing. We love the Red Sox. Our family loves the Red Sox. You mean to tell me that Larry Lucchino is going to be sitting out here with you talking baseball? I said, yes, I, I certainly hope Larry comes to visit. That's amazing. We love the Red Sox. They've done so much for our, our friends and our family. Oh, my God, we love the Red Sox. I said, thank you. Uh, he said, look, tomorrow night, July 3rd, not the 4th, the 3rd, we do a big bonfire on the beach. How about if you come and meet the rest of our family? I said, that would be wonderful. Next day is July 3rd. Sun goes down. When that happens, it gets dark, very dark. And the bonfire is a great bonfire, a big one. It illuminates beautifully, but it's the only source of illumination. Right. So I said to my friends, do you want to go meet them? No, they're your neighbors. You go. I said, fine. So I walk over and through the light created by the fire, I'm looking for Robbie's face. I'm looking for, you know, I don't know anybody. Uh, Dr. Charles, says Robbie. Uh, ah, there, there, there you go. All right. And he introduced me to his brother. And you met my mother. And you met my aunt. And then here's this one. And that one. It's a big crowd. You know, when, when you're the Clancy's from Quincy, it's a big crowd. And maybe, you know, others have come too. He said, it's just amazing that you live next door to us. We love the Red Sox. They've been so good to our family, so good to our friends. I mean, you know, with the poster and everything with Trot Nixon, it's just amazing. I said, what? What do you mean the poster with Trot Nixon? He goes, with, with, with the poster, with, with the billboard of Trot Nixon. I said, what do you know about that? He said, well, that's me and my brother in the picture. That was our friend who died oh, in the service. I said, that's you? And he goes, yeah, me and my brother, we're, we're in the picture on, on, each, on each side of our, our friend. I said, that's you? He goes, yeah. In fact, you wanted to give the poster to the family. They couldn't take it because they didn't have a truck. We had the truck. Oh, my God. God. Small world. And with and with that, an older gray-haired man comes over to me and says, I wanted to say hello to you. You've earned a good name in our community. I said, are you a Clancy from Quincy? He said, no, I'm Marty Cohen. And um, I think he's from Randolph. I said, okay. Uh, he said, um, and I think it was Beth Am Synagogue he was a member of. He said, um, we all know what you did. We were friends of Larry Solomon. I'm thinking Larry Solomon, Larry Solomon, who's Larry Solomon? And he goes, the train conductor. I said, what? He said, we know what you did for him, but you don't know what you did for him. We all know the story. We know the story that you met him on the train, that you let him hold the World Series trophy, 
that you took his picture, that you let his son come to opening day. He said, and when he met you, he told you he thought he'd never live to see the day. That's because he had leukemia and he did, knew that he didn't have much time left, but he did see them win. And he was there at opening day with his son. And he saw that his picture was on the cover of Red Sox magazine. He said, you earned a good name in our community. That is an unbelievable story. Oh my God. And, and we close with this. I'm at Fenway Park, that same, that same uh, early part of 2006 in what's called the red conference room because it had red chairs and my cell phone rings. That's my buddy, my colleague, Sam Kennedy. We've grown up together uh, ever since the Padre days, as well as the Red Sox days. He's now president and CEO of the Red Sox. And Sam was in charge of all of the partnerships with corporations. All those signs you would see in the ballpark, Sam was in charge of. And he calls me and says, are you here? I said, yeah, I'm in the red conference room. He said, can you come into the green conference room? I said, sure. So I go across the hall into the green conference room, green chairs. And there are three men seated at the table. They're like out of central casting as businessmen. They have dark suits and salt and pepper hair. They, they look like they're very corporate. And Sam says, uh, these three gentlemen are here from Gulf Oil, and we are trying to get them to agree to put their Gulf Oil logo in foul territory, just foul of the foul pole on the green monster. And they are reluctant to do so unless they meet you. I said, well, I'm very flattered. I said, but I'm not David Ortiz. And the one in the middle said, no, but let me tell you who I think you are. I said, okay. He said, two years ago, you, the Red Sox had a caravan to Warwick, Rhode Island. I said, that's right. He said, there was a little boy, I said, wearing a Veritech jersey. He said, that was my son. Unbelievable. You changed my son's life. He said, you changed his life. Self-esteem is vulnerable for anyone at any age, no more so than for an 11-year-old. And he went into school the next day, and he was the king of the class. He had the autographs. He had the photographs. He was the star of the show. You changed my son's life. There's nothing I wouldn't do for the Red Sox, but I wanted to meet the people who changed my son's life. And ever since... You've seen a Gulf Oil logo in foul territory on the green monster. By the way, the postscript to that story, I left to go to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Then I went and worked for Commissioner Emeritus Bud Selig. Came back to the Red Sox, never knew that I was coming back. Came back in March of 2012. Larry Lucchino had made a documentary uh, on the 100th anniversary of Fenway. And... As I arrived back, he took me to see a screening of it made by a very talented filmmaker who does National Geographic specials. And so Larry and I are catching up and we're in the car and we're driving out west of Boston to one of the W towns. I'm not sure which one it was. Was it Westwood or Wellesley or Weston? One of those W's. And we pull into the lot of some glass and steel building as we get out of the car. I said, by the way, where are we? He said, well, the film cost a fortune. 
uh, he said, and um, uh, the screening is at the underwriters. And as we opened the door, I said, who's the underwriter? He goes, Gulf Oil. And as we walk in, a man says, Charles, welcome back to the Red Sox. Told you there was nothing I wouldn't do for the Red Sox. You know, my son has followed your career. He never forgot what you've done for him. One year later, we're looking at the thumbnails of who the summer interns will be for the Red Sox, including what your favorite moment was. And for every child at that point, it was winning the 2004 World Series, winning the 2004 World Series, the comeback that won the 2004 World Series. When I was a little boy, there was a caravan to Warwick, Rhode Island. <laughs> oh, my God. So I wound up re-meeting the little boy uh, as he became an intern for the Red Sox while going to Quinnipiac College. And he brought to me the pictures that his mother took that day as we closed the loop on the story. And what he said was, what you didn't know, was I woke up that morning and saw on Neston that Jason Veritek was going to be in Rhode Island, went into my parents' room and said, you got to take me, you got to take me. And they said, no, school comes first. He said, and I cried my eyes out because I had to go to school. And then at 12 o'clock, my mom comes to school, surprises me, takes me out of school, takes me to meet Jason Veritek. But then I don't. But then I do because of you. Wow. That's everything I've learned about the business of baseball. That's unbelievable. Everything, That's a crazy story. Yeah, everything, everything connects at the end of the day. And everything just, connects. Wow. You know, it's yeah. all human. Forget the business. Forget the dollar signs. It's all human. I want to change. I want to just uh, go on to a, another topic just for a couple minutes before we, we wrap up. Um, that story was almost like a fairy tale. And I think speaking of fairy tales, we kind of saw one on Sunday. I can't stand Tom Brady, but it was kind of just unbe unbelievable to see him win another Super Bowl in another town. And obviously you have Boston ties. Your, your career is kind of lined up with his. How impressed were you uh, by, by Sunday's win? Well, I love Tom Brady. And, um, you know, my definition of the Super Bowl for years was if the Patriots won, well, we now knew what the centerpiece would be of our opening day ceremonies at Fenway Park. If the Patriots lost, I would have still gladly welcomed them, but we, we didn't do that. So watching a Super Bowl was dictating my opening day ceremonies with Sarah McKenna, my colleague at, at the Red Sox. So I always would watch the Super Bowls through, through that lens. Um, and Tom Brady never let us down. He was there. Uh, it made opening days so special at Fenway Park. Um, I'm much, I'm, I'm, I'm a monogamous baseball fan. Uh, so I appreciate football, I appreciate the other sports, love what they do for the culture of a community. And so I really thought Tom Brady brought a lot of joy to New England Sunday night because I think there are a lot of people who appreciate what a marvel he is, how great he is. And um, you can quibble and you can argue and you can debate about whether the Patriots should let him go. Put all that aside and say, wow, you just watched this man at 43 years old go out and demonstrate without any, any equivocation that he 
is a seven-time Super Bowl champion. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. And um, while I don't condone the following, even his pass yesterday of the Lombardi Trophy across the Gulf of Mexico (laughs) to Gronk was, well, it showed the courage and the confidence that I guess has gotten him to... uh, to this amazing yeah. perch. Yeah, a yeah, bit I, I'm a Jets fan, so it's been hard for me to follow it for the last 20 years. It's, yes. it's not, yes. not easy. Tom had a little yeah, bit well, of liquid, you, liquid confidence uh, <laughs> the other day. You know, uh, a little bit of when you, when you have these thoroughbreds, when you have these Hall of Famers, you may keep them too long sometimes, but it's been my experience, never give up on a Hall of Famer who wants to play. Right. Yeah, I was shocked they let him go. I, I was, I was so so sure that he was gonna end up coming back, and then when he finally announced it, I was I was stunned because it just um, imagining him in a different uniform, it was like incomprehensible yeah. until you finally saw it happen. Yeah, and what I've seen in baseball, uh, and it happens in other sports. I make no judgments about it, but the intellectual cleverness that says better to trade him a year early so that we're not stuck with him when he isn't good anymore. I have seen that backfire so many times because the Hall of Famers are a special breed. They have the passion. They have the talent. They have the skills. They have the experience. My, They don't let me make these decisions with good reason. I sign them all to, to and pay them too much for too many years, but Never give up on a Hall of Famer. The Hall of Famers adore the game. Yep. And no, nobody better than him. Nobody. Right. You want to wrap up with anything, Owen? Uh, no. I mean, this was really awesome. I appreciate this a lot, uh, Charles, for coming on and, uh, you know, talking with us and, you know, telling us all these stories and, you know, just a continuation almost of class, you know, I, I really enjoyed this and I really appreciate you coming on. And, uh, you know, obviously when this episode's posted, we'll tag you on Twitter and, uh, you know, just, you know, get that going. So I really, I really appreciate it. And I know Noah does too. So. Yeah. Echo wow. the same sentiment as own. My pleasure. And the stories that I told you are, um, are, you know, probably going to greatest hits album. Not that I had anything to do with it, but uh, they're, they're cool stories. But there are a lot more stories. Baseball is a game of story generation. And there are story makers and there are storytellers. And that's been one of the great joys of a career that, thank God, is now 45 years in baseball. Yes. Before we go, just one word. Who's your World Series pick for 2021? Oh, gosh, wouldn't it be shocking to the world if the Boston Red Sox went from worst to first yet again? (laughs) Uh. You know, everybody judges it by fame and familiarity of players. That's not necessarily how you win. So I do root for Mookie Betts. I definitely do. But uh, wouldn't a Red Sox-Dodgers rematch be, be cool? Let's hope for that. All right. That would be would be good. Thank you again, Charles. All right. Take care. Well, that'll wrap it up for episode number 19 here on Schwartz on Sports. We'll see you guys next week with more content.